As I understand it, you've been spending quite a bit of time examining sharing your faith. And especially through the eyes of Paul and through the eyes of Jonah and through the eyes of Jesus. And I think that's very important. And it really dovetails directly with what the Lord has laid on my heart for the message today. I didn't start out to preach this message. Actually, I started out a week ago as I was preparing for today to, to look at Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29 and 30 where it talks about uh, uh, the rest of the Lord, the rest in the Lord. And the more I prayed, the more God just sort of moved me over here. So somebody must need this today, I guess. But I would say uh, I, I've, I've got a great idea and I'd like to come back and explore the unforced rhythms of grace. So sometimes invite us back and uh, we'll come and, and do that as well. Um, you know, we live in a crazy world as Christians, do we not? And actually, if you were to uh, ask the average believer, how's the church in America doing these days? I think you'd get an answer that's probably overwhelmingly positive. I mean, you think about the Willow Creeks and the Saddlebacks and the Eagle Brooks and all the churches that have 2,000 and 3,000 and, and 20,000 members, and you think, well, we must be doing well in this country. But, you know, reality is different than what the TV shows and the magazines may show. And when you peel back the surface, you might see things are not as rosy as they might be. Now, I'm not a harbinger of doom and gloom here, but I think it's important to kind of understand the truth of things. My pastor always says, who's for honesty and truth in church? So well, that's a good place to start. And I think just like the astronauts of Apollo 13, um, Houston, we do have a problem. Now, there are some prevalent myths about the church in America today. I'd like to take a quick look at them. We sort of have this perception that every church is large and every church is growing and every church has big staffs and, and it's just great. And, you know, admittedly, for some of us, and I've spent most of my career in a smaller church, it kind of maybe leaves some of us feeling, well, what about us? Are we chopped liver or what? Well, it's true that some churches are large and multi-staffed and all of that, but, you know, if you look at the actual statistics of it, the mean-sized church in America today is still 75. Now, I've been in some of those churches. They are mean. But um, <laughs> they're one pastor, maybe a part-time youth pastor or youth worker. In fact, if you actually do the numbers, 94% of all churches in America are 499 or less in size. Now, I don't know if you ever go to Minneapolis and visit churches like Eagle Burke, and I, that's a great church, and I love it. And I, I wish there were more like that. But when you step in one of those churches, I want you to remind yourself that you're walking into the upper 0.5% and maybe the upper 0.1% of all churches in America. In the reality, in this country, the picture is quite different. In fact, uh, if you read some of the books and collect some of the facts, you realize that 3,500 to 4,000 churches in this country close every year. And that's a growing statistic from earlier. Half of all churches, half of all churches did not add one new member through conversion growth last year. So consequently... According to H.B. London and Pastors at Greater Risk, 90% of pastors feel inadequately trained to cope with the ministry demands that they face. 
And 70% report they do not have a close friend or confidant to share these frustrations with. And so they're there with them alone. One of the saddest statistics we've ever encountered comes from Focus on the Family. It says that 1,500 pastors a month leave the ministry, mostly not to go to anything else. They just leave, discouraged or depressed or in sometimes invited out the door. You know, and that flies in the face of the growing need that we have in this country. Uh, for example, Time Magazine reports that uh, the nuns, and that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, the nuns are the fastest growing segment of the religious scene. Those who put none down on their religious preference. See, that's why Pinnacle Ministry exists. Now, we're not here to do a missions presentation, but I'd like to just slide in for a moment that we are called to serve the small to mid-sized church and, and to help those who generally can afford least the help that they need. And our vision is to help them develop healthy pastors, healthy leaders leading healthy churches. And I would just, we were just totaling up some statistics since uh, I believe the end of March. We've been engaged with uh, 17 churches and 13 denominations over the summer in terms of helping them think through what it is to be a church of impact in a day and age when the church isn't always have impact. And uh, in the back, we have our display, and if you want to know a little bit about what we do, we'll be happy to be back there and talk to you about Shalom House that you use on a regular basis and some of the services we do for pastors and um, the uh, retool kit, which is a process for revitalizing churches. And all that really ties into my thoughts for today, and I, so I just want to say thank you again for your support. <clears throat> because in reality, as great as they are, and make no mistake, I am just pleased to see churches thrive. I live for that. But as great as they are, the headliner churches are not the churches that make the greatest impact in this country. It's the ordinary church filled with, with ordinary people in ordinary towns who have the greatest potential to transform this nation and set it back on the track of one nation under God. So churches like Bethany and Good News and any number of churches are churches that God chooses to use to do exactly what he wants to do. Ordinary people, ordinary believers living out their lives. Nowhere do you see that better portrayed than in the opening chapters of the book of Acts and personified in a fellow by the name of Saul who we know as the Apostle Paul. Now if you think about Paul, he's a pretty impressive guy. I mean, if you want to have a resume, you want to have a resume like Paul. I mean, he was the, a leader in the Jewish faith. He was the founder of many, if not most, of the New Testament churches. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he was an author of at least 13 books of the Bible. He was a theologian. He was an evangelist. He confronted kings with the gospel. I mean, this guy was just a dynamo of human spiritual energy. But, you know, he wasn't always that way. He wasn't born that way, you know, the fearless apostle. And what I'd like to look at this morning is the chain of ordinary, basic believers 
who really did nothing more than be obedient to God's will in their lives and usually through fear and trepidation but they combined to shape Paul's life and, and make him the man of God he became. Now, the New Testament identifies at least four of them. There were others, but four are singled out, who simply ministered out of the fullness of their walks with God. They combined together to have an impact way beyond their wildest hopes and dreams. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, and we'll start in Acts chapter 8, where we meet our first ordinary believer, who did an extraordinary thing, but he didn't start out that way, the first ordinary believer who is a man named Stephen. You find him in Acts, actually chapter 7, verse uh, 54, through long about uh, chapter 8, verse 3. <clears throat> um, when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick and began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know, if you go back prior to this incredible moment of drama and, and sacrifice, you go back to the start, you discover that Stephen was a man who was called to a highly specialized ministry. We discover him waiting on tables because he was appointed to help distribute food to the Greek widows who had no doubt stayed at Pentecost when the great movement of the Spirit happened and were not being well cared for in the food distribution. And you remember in Acts that the apostles got together and say, let's appoint seven people and let's take care of this need. And so he had a very ordinary task, waiting on tables. Well, you might ask, what was his qualifications? Maybe, you know, he had a highly developed sense of organizational skill. Maybe he had a, you know, a iPad abacus that he could keep track of everything on. Uh, or maybe he was just really good at making people feel good. Well, what I know is the Bible spells out his qualifications in Acts 6.3, where it says, Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Reputation. Spirituality. Wisdom. You know, I can relate to that. I can aspire to be someone like that. You can too. I know I will never be a Peter. I'll never be a Paul. Marie says I'm appalling sometimes, but that's another story. But we can be that. And, and they chose Stephen because of that, and they chose well. And in his innate nature, he just wanted to tell people about Jesus. And, and as he shared the good news of Jesus, as he passed out the matzah to the people, he just told people about Jesus. In fact, he was so outspoken at sharing the gospel, he gets arrested in Acts 6. But that gives him opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the people who held him captive. And he does that so well that they kill him to silence him. But you know, in the crowd watching and approving was this young Jewish leader named Stephen, uh, named uh, Saul. And, and I observed that if he was there watching, he was also there listening and this is a Harrisonism it's something I think to be true but I can't prove Marie says my first book will be Harrison's Systematic Heresies that's probably true um, but I think he was listening rather closely because you find right after this event 
the event of Acts 8 starts. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on the day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women and put them in prison. You know, the text says it wasn't just enough for Saul to persecute the church or to try to stop the message. He literally tried, the word there is, is it's a strong word, it's like a badger tearing into something. He tried to destroy the church. See, I think Stephen's message got to him. A and he was using anger to drown out the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that have to do with us today? Well, do you ever feel that your effectiveness and you witness, just never bear fruit? I mean, we're encouraged to spread the light, we're encouraged to share the gospel, and you try to the best of your ability, but you're maybe not just sure what you have to offer is all that valuable, and that you try to share the message, and is it really that effective? You know what I find interesting? In Scripture... Nowhere does it ever say Stephen brought a single person to Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't live long. I know that. He told people to the best of his ability. He got some people really irritated at him. But nowhere in Scripture does it say he ever brought one person to Jesus. But you know what? He got to share a seed nobody else could share. God used him and his willingness to speak to plant a seed that nobody else could, uh, could, could share. Folks, never, never, never doubt your value to the kingdom. Never doubt your witness. Never doubt your effectiveness. You haven't a clue how that one word, that one opportunity, that one time may start a chain of events that you will have no idea the end result. Stephen didn't. And that leads into a second ordinary believer, a fellow named Ananias. Turn in your Bibles over to Acts 9 because the seed is sown and it takes root and it comes to fruition in Acts 9 where you know the story on the road to Damascus. Now, I don't know how many days or weeks had gone by, but now Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. This guy was really hot, okay? He was ticked. Um, breathing threats and murder against the disciple of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters uh, to the synagogue at Damascus, so it wasn't enough to stamp him out in Jerusalem. I'm going to go chase him down in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. I mean, what an incredible conversion experience. He, Jesus intervenes and his life is just like turned upside down. 
And, and he's blind, and he is so provoked by this encounter that it goes on to say he ate or drank nothing for three days. I mean, he was really messed up as his life and Jesus' life had a nose-to-nose encounter in Jesus one. You know, encountering Jesus can do that to a person. Encountering Jesus can literally turn someone's life upside down. And what they need most of all at that time is simply someone who can patiently and gently love them and help them take their first feeble steps into the new life of faith that God has appointed for them. Paul got that in the person of Ananias. And I want to tell you I'd love to be a fly on the wall when God spoke to Ananias and said, have I got a deal for you? You see it in verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight you know would you just have loved to be there I don't know if you ever pray for God to speak to you and use you in a powerful way but you can just sort of see Ananias there and and all of a sudden the Lord breaks in and says Ananias this is the Lord I've got a job for you and I I can almost say Lord I've given this a lot of thought and I tell you what I'd really like to work for Peter if I could I think that'd be kind of cool and the Lord says no so how about John how about John I think I'd be good in a healing ministry Lord I, I think that'd work for me no. What about, what about being a church planter? I think I could be a good church planter. And the Lord said, no. And, and Ananias said, well, Lord, what then? Text goes on to say, loosely translated, Ananias, yes, Lord. Do you remember Saul? 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 Do I remember Saul? You mean that guy who's out to destroy the church? The guy who's arresting Christians everywhere he goes? The guy who's throwing in prison if he can't kill him first? Do I remember him? Yeah, I remember him. Why? I want you to go love on him for a little while. I love verse 13. But you've got to get the right frame of mind when you read it. <clears throat> it says, um, <clears throat> Lord, I've heard much about this man and, and, and all the harm he's done to his saints, <clears throat> of which uh, your saints, of which I am one, and all the authority he has to rest the saints, <clears throat> which I am one. Are you sure? And thus saith the Lord. Yep. <laughs> Is anyone here besides me fearful to share your faith? faith? Come on, anybody? I am. I am. Okay, I stand up here and I preach. That's fun. You're a nice audience. But I have a hard time sharing my faith with people who aren't such a nice audience. Uh, I struggle with being faithful in the face of unbelievers. It's tough. People think you're some kind of nut job when you do that. Ananias understood that. But what I find is, is in fearful obedience, the text says, verse 17, he departed and entered the house, entered the house, and he went to Saul. Ananias' contribution to show love with no strings attached. How would you have responded to that call if you were told to go to the number one public enemy of the church? I think I know how I would have responded. Saul, you've got to be kidding me. I wouldn't give him the time of day, let alone the gospel. He doesn't deserve it for everything he's done. 
But notice what Ananias did in verse 17. When he went in, he laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. He got to live out the spoken love of Jesus into the life of Saul. Stephen shares. He has a witness. Ananias loves. He gets the harvest. And it sets the stage for our third ordinary believer. Because now Saul's life is in total free fall. And he's trying to sort out what it all means and, and uh, how you, you integrate what he's been doing. And you can just see him struggling with this and some time goes by. But, but wouldn't you just love to be in Damascus about this time as the church killer suddenly becomes a church planter? And he begins to powerfully preach and proclaim the gospel. And you can imagine that the people are confused. Verse 21, all those hearing him continued to be amazed. And they were saying, is not the he who was in Jerusalem destroyed those called on his name and came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? What's going on? And confused people sometimes get angry. Verse 23, after many days elapsed, the Jews plotted together to, together to do away with him. They wanted to kill him. So Saul has to escape. Verse 25, disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall in the basket, and then he went to Jerusalem where he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believing, not believing, he was a disciple. I mean, it's great. Saul's reputation precedes him. And he goes to Jerusalem and he wants to join the church. Now, would you like to have been at that church meeting? Okay, I don't know how your church meetings go. Some church meetings are quite interesting, business meetings. I used to love our business meetings. They were a lot of fun. I've been in some that were not so much fun. This was not a fun church business meeting. It probably went something like this. Uh, okay, next order of business is to vote on the member, uh, membership of one Saul of Tarsus. Are there any questions or discussions? And a guy stands up over there and says, Saul, you've got to be kidding. Yeah, sure, he's a Christian. Another one stands up. He's a Christian, and my mother's in the Roman Legion, too. Another one stands up and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I was there when he oversaw Steve's execution. I don't know what he's doing, but he has no place with us. He's joining over my dead body. By the way, church conflict is not a new thing. And uh, most of the New Testament was written, by the way, to solve church conflict. It's usually what happens when the interplay of the world hits the reality of the kingdom and we try to sort it out and make it work. Well, then you come to verse 27 where it simply says, but Barnabas. I wonder how many lives have been changed by that divine conjunction, but. Verse 27 says that he took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and how he'd talked to him and, and how at Damascus he'd spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus and he was with them and he moved freely about in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas took him and said he's okay. But I, just a minute, where'd he get the story? Uh, scripture doesn't say he was in Damascus when all this was happening. We're not told Barnabas was there. In fact, we first learn of Barnabas in Acts 4.36 where he is encouraging the church. In fact, if you read that passage, you will discover his name really isn't Barnabas. His name is Joseph. Barnabas is a nickname meaning son of encouragement. Here is a guy so incredibly well-known for being an encourager that everybody just calls him Joe the Encourager. And he's described in Acts 11.4 that he was a good man, full of the Spirit, 
and faith. Are you seeing a, a trend here? That these people were ordinary people who loved Jesus, were full of faith, and simply wanted to be used of him. What did he bring to the table? His spiritual gift. Just a spiritual gift. And it's not a gift that maybe we consider all that impressive, you know. We kind of like the gift of leadership, or the gift of preaching, or the gift of teaching, or the gift of apostleship, but encouragement? You see, as far as we know, he was not anywhere around where Paul encountered Christ. So he must have heard the story. He must have said, Paul, let's, let's go down to Starbucks. I'll, I'll buy you some coffee. Let's talk about this. Tell me your story. And he listened to Saul and he said, Saul, I believe you. Let me see if I can get the others to believe you too. What's your gift? What's your spiritual gift? Do you know what it is? Do you know what combination of gifts God has uniquely given you? How he has wired you and what he's asked you to do? Are you doing it? You see, the body of Christ is constructed so there should be no such thing as pew sitters, which, of course, we can't be pew sitters today. We don't have pews. But if we had pews, that were to be pew sitters. You see, he has given gifts to everybody in the body. Barnabas's was just encouragement. Joe the encourager. And all he did was try to live out his gift. We're going to look at Ephesians 4.16 in a few moments, but it simply tells us the church thrives as every part does its part in the body. Do you know your gift may unlock the next Paul? Your gift may unleash the next Billy Graham. Your gift may turn loose the next D.L. Moody. Barnabas's did and he took Paul under his wing actually it was Saul but their name changed to Paul to work with the Greeks and the Romans took him under his wing made a series of trips together for the gospel Barnabas discipling and mentoring him until we get to our last character because our last ordinary believer over in John 15 you may want to flip over there with me is a fellow by the name of John Mark Somewhere on their journey, they must have picked up this young disciple to join them. His name was John, John Mark. Some commentators feel he probably was just a teenager at the time. So what you have here is the first mention of the first youth group mission trip in the scripture. And he went on the mission trip and he blew it. I'd, we're not told what he did, but the scripts, scripture says in verse 36, chapter 15, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, call Mark along with them also, but Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So we don't know what happened. I don't know. Maybe he got lonely. Maybe he was too young and he got homesick. Maybe he drank the water. I don't know. But he crashed and he burned. And he went home. Now Barnabas and Saul want to take a second trip. And, and Barnabas wants to, to take John Mark with him. And, and Paul utters this profound theological decision. No way, Jose. He goes over my dead body. It's in the Greek um, by the way, doesn't that sound a lot like the church in Jerusalem that Paul had to contend with? Hmm. Sometimes we're slow in learning our lessons. 
What a disaster. Barnabas' friend, Barnabas' helper, Barnabas' mentor, this long-standing, this productive relationship is shattered. The, the text says that there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark and went that way, and, P, and uh, uh, Paul took Silas and went that way, literally. And actually, the word in Greek is the word paroxysm. We use that in English today. Paroxysms of laughter, fits of coughing. They just, they had a fit. It got tense. Remember what I said about conflict in the church? Okay, Acts 9, here it is. Top two leaders having at it, hammer and tongs. However, I would like to suggest that that encounter did leave a mark on Paul, no pun intended, because up till now, I really kind of think Paul was a line drawer. You know what those kinds of guys are? All right, you guys, you want to serve Christ? Step over the line. If not, get out of the way. I don't have time for you. The rest of you go home. And now he's willing, he's seeing Barnabas willing to separate a marriage made in heaven to continue to minister to this loser named Mark. John Mark's contribution? He tried. He failed. Have you ever failed? Anybody in here ever failed? Anybody ever in here ever fail spiritually? I have. You know, we're in good company. Did it make you want to try to get up and go again? Often not. In fact, Paul was ready to kick this guy to the side of the road, but Barnabas wouldn't let him do it. And instead of becoming an also-ran in the history of, of the church, John Mark went on to pen one of the four Gospels of Jesus Christ. Now, we know the relationship was repaired because in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul told Timothy, it's almost his last recorded words, uh, bring Mark, get Mark, and bring him with you because he's useful to me in my ministry. You know, I think Mark contributed a healthy dose of reality to Paul's life. Not everyone gets it right the first time. One of the things we discover is that this business of Jesus, nobody knows how to do it when you first become a Christian. Nobody suddenly gets all how to pray and how to serve and, and how to witness. It's stuff we have to learn and we don't always get it right the first time. Some of us need a second chance. Some of us need a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. You may be sitting here today wounded from failure. Assuming God can't use you, I'm here to tell you, wounded believers is God's speciality. And he uses those best of all. So you see, while impact comes from high-powered pulpits and mega-church domains, and, and, and I love them, and I'm not criticizing them, I think they're great, it also comes from ordinary believers and ordinary churches ordinary towns Stephen, Ananias Barnabas, John Mark four ordinary guys, none of them theologically trained, none of them paid professionals just four Christians each doing his part no part inordinately special in Paul's life but doing what God asked them to do a man who simply sowed a seed as best he could a man who, literally in fear, went and loved someone to Jesus. A man who did what God gifted him to do, and he did best. He just encouraged 
and a young person who did what we all do fail but when combined provided the nurturing ground for the greatest leader the church of Jesus Christ has ever seen as I mentioned earlier in Ephesians 4 16 we're told from him Christ the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work I remember a sign outside a church that I saw once. I kind of like it. It says, ordinary people serving an extraordinary God. Let me ask you a question as we close. What part do you play in God's plan today? Because if you're in here and you're a believer, you have a part to play. What would God decide, desire to do through you right now using the gifts and talents and inclinations he has given you right now if you but let him do it. What can I do by simply being who I am and doing what I'm called to do? Because that might leave a lasting impact on this community and this region and this world. In other words, what's your part? We just discovered four folks who together changed the world. There's not one person in this room who loves Jesus who doesn't have a part to play. What would have happened? Now, I know God would have done his work, but what would have happened to Paul if Stephen decided to shut his mouth and simply serve food? Or if Ananias was frankly too afraid to go knock on that door and say, Brother Saul. Or if ba Barnabas had a bad day and said to Saul, take a hike. Or John Mark never even tried. Four ordinary believers combined to make an incredible impact that changed the world. We would not be in this room today were it not for those four men. What impact is contained in this room today? You all look pretty ordinary. And that's really all the qualifications God needs. Pray with me, please. Gracious Father, thank you. Thank you for the picture of Scripture. It's, it's not the professionals that do it, there's a place for we who've been called to serve, but it's the ordinary Christian. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit liberate the power in this room in ways that are not even imaginable yet. There's been some great stories today, new life in Christ and wonderful stuff. And Lord, I'm persuaded we're barely touching the surface. Help each of us as believers to lay on the altar that which you've given us and simply do, to the best of our ability, that which we can do. And then, Father, we wait upon you to combine that to make the incredible happen. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.